What's going on, everyone? Welcome back to another episode of the JT Sports Podcast, aka JT Sports Live. I'm your host, JT. Sorry for the late start. The reason why it took a while was because I was creating the graphics for the big main encore of today's show, which is I'm going to be ranking my 10 best college football quarterbacks since 2010. We're also going to be discussing how good will the Miami Hurricanes be this upcoming season? How improved will Brian Flores make the Minnesota Vikings defense? Why Kadarius Tony will also have a breakout season for the Kansas City Chiefs? And of course, I'm going to be ranking college football's top 10 best quarterbacks since the year 2010. If you haven't already, make sure that you guys leave a like, subscribe to the channel. We go live every day, Monday through Friday at 5 p.m. Eastern Time. Check out the JT Sports Podcast. The podcast isn't just available on YouTube. It's available on all podcasting platforms, Apple, Google, Spotify, Amazon, wherever you get your podcast from, you can find the JT Sports Podcast. I want to start off with talking about my Miami Hurricanes, man. Now, for those of you guys who don't know, I'm a diehard Hurricanes fan. I've been rooting for this team ever since I first started watching college football back in 2010 and It's been a while since I talked about this team, man. This team, they put me through a lot of trauma last year. And now I'm a little bit more healed to talk about it, man. Because last year, Mario Cristobal was hired. He pushed Manny Diaz out the door. Or the administration pretty much pushed Manny Diaz out the door. And I was expecting big things out of Mario Cristobal year one in Miami. I don't know how many other Hurricanes fans felt the same way I felt about the Hurricanes last season, but I came out on this platform and said that Miami was going to win the ACC last year. And of course, that didn't happen. As a matter of fact, that didn't come close to happening because these boys didn't even make a bowl game, man. Like, can I vent to y'all for a couple of minutes, man? Because I haven't talked about this program ever since them boys lost to Middle Tennessee State, man. Like, I got a homie named Ralph Mincy. Shout out to my boy. He got number 94 Middle Tennessee State, right? So after they got done beating Miami, I hit him up after the game. And I was like, hey, bro, did y'all expect to win that game? Be honest. And he said, hell yeah, man. Like, our coach was telling us the whole entire week leading up to the game that they were going to end up beating Miami. And it was so embarrassing because these boys were throwing 71-yard touchdowns, bro, against the Miami Hurricanes, man. And not just did we lose the Middle Tennessee State, but these boys got blown out by Florida State, Clemson, Pitt, and most embarrassing, Duke. And we're not talking about basketball, people. We are talking about football, dog. Football. Duke is a basketball school, not a football school. Like, when is the last time Miami ever got clapped that bad like how they did last season against Duke, fam? The Duke Blue Devils really thrashed the Miami Hurricanes, bruh. And a lot of Hurricanes fans... Kept on telling me, man, JT, you got to chill. You got to chill out. It's a rebuilding year. Like, man, F that, bro. You mean to tell me Miami spent all that money, pushed out Manny Diaz just for Mario Cristobal to go into year one and not even make it to a bowl game? You see, I think last season was karma from the football gods for how this program 
pushed out Manny Diaz. And you already know what they say. God don't like ugly. And how Miami did Manny Diaz was really wrong. Now, some of you guys may disagree with that, but whatever, bro. It was really wrong, in my opinion, how they did Manny Diaz. And last season, the way that it went, I think was karma from the football gods for how they treated Manny Diaz, bro. Like, I can't get over this. Miami, even in a rebuilding year, should not be losing to Duke. I mean, come on. I can understand getting blown out by FSU and Clemson, but getting blown out by Pitt and Duke, bruh? Like, this program has reached the ultimate low. And I've been a Hurricane fan since the Al Golden days. I didn't think things could get any worse from when Al Golden was the head coach. I would have expected this from any other head coach not named Mario Cristobal, dog. Like, losing to Duke, I don't give a damn if it's a rebuilding year, bro. Miami, under no circumstance, should ever be losing to Duke Blue Devils football, bro. No excuses, bro. And then, you know, I overhyped this coaching staff. I was really excited about Kevin Steele. And most importantly, Josh Gaddis, who going into last season, was the Burroughs Award winner. And when I was bragging about our coaching staff and I was bragging about Josh Gaddis and his offense. There were a lot of Michigan fans who were saying, LOL, have fun with that. And I was a little bit surprised because I was like, what do you mean have fun with that? Like, y'all just lost a fantastic offensive coordinator. This dude helped lead y'all to the college football playoffs that season. And then Josh Gaddis comes out and he says he left Michigan because he felt unappreciated. And I see why he felt unappreciated. Because that offense that he was running last year was the worst offense that I've ever seen out of a Miami Hurricanes coach team, dog. And he's probably the worst offensive coordinator that I've ever seen call plays in all my years being a Hurricane fan. And you got to remember, we done had some pretty crappy offensive coordinators. Y'all remember Dan Enos? Y'all remember him? Y'all remember Pastor Mark Rick? When he was calling the place, Mr. Run Run Pass. I mean, there has been some really god-awful offensive coordinators during my time being a Hurricanes fan that I've had to watch. But out of all of the all out of all of the OCs that have came through Miami, I was not expecting Josh Gaddis to be the worst of the bunch. And I mean, I'm just gonna keep it a stack with y'all. I don't really have too much faith. And Mario Cristobal. And if this dude doesn't end up working out, you know who I think we should end up hiring? I think we should go to SMU and bring back Wert Lashley, the best OC that Miami has ever had in all my years being a Hurricanes fan. Hell, maybe they should go ahead and bring back Manny Diaz because at least he could get us to a ball game. So Mario Cristobal... I have to give him credit for this. He did bring in a really good recruiting class despite how awful last season was. He pretty much cleaned house on the coaching staff for pretty much was a fire cell. You remember when Kmart was starting to close down? Now, I don't know if you still have a Kmart where you live, but down here in Florida, Kmart is pretty much non-existent. And when Kmart was shutting down, they had a lot of clearance sales. They had like 50% off. It pretty much was a fire sale. They just had to get rid of everything, right? So at the end of this season, Mario Cristobal, to his credit, 
got rid of Josh Gaddis. He got him out of there really quick. Nick Saban went ahead and took Kevin Still. Hey, Coach Nick Saban, you can have Kevin Still, even though he wasn't bad, but you can do a little bit better than him. Like, you can just have Kevin Still. You can have whoever. Like, that whole entire coaching staff was awful. That was one of the worst coaching staffs that has ever been assembled over the past decade at Miami. I mean, that was the worst coaching staff than when Pastor Rick had his son that's a quarterback's coach. I mean, you bring in new OC, Shannon Dawson, from Houston. He's going to be running somewhat of an air raid offense, which should help out Tyler Van Dyke because Josh Gaddis was so awful as an OC that he just completely destroyed Tyler Van Dyke. Like, prior to last season, this dude, Tyler Van Dyke, if he would have played the whole entire 2021 season, he was on pace to have at least 40 touchdowns. And then Braun goes into last season, and it just looks like this dude just completely fell apart. It looked like Tyler Van Dyke forgot how to play quarterback. That's how bad Josh Gaddis was as the OC. So Shannon Dawson don't know too much about how good of a play caller he is, but the bar is set pretty low considering what Miami had calling plays last season and how the offensive coordinator position has been for Miami over the past decade. There's only been one truly good OC that has came through this program, and it's been Rhett Lashley. And he's balling out at SMU right now with everything that they've been getting in the transfer portal. They have a lot of hype. They probably have more excitement down there in SMU then many people have about Miami Hurricanes football going into this season, man. You got a new defensive coordinator who you kind of stole from Tulane. Now, originally, he spent two seasons as the defensive coordinator for Marshall, and Marshall had some pretty damn good defenses under him. And he was supposed to go to Tulane. He only stayed at Tulane for a brief moment. He pretty much opened the door, walked in, and three seconds later, walked back out and closed it. Because I guess Miami just went ahead and dropped that bag, and that bag was too much for him to turn down. He said, you know what, I appreciate the offer, Tulane, but I'm taking my talents down to South Beach. And I don't blame him. Even though the football program wasn't great, there's always a lot of fun things to do down there in South Florida. You got nice women, nice weather, it doesn't get too cold, and it's a really nice campus. I have been on the University of Miami's campus. This is one of the nicest universities probably in the whole entire country, bruh. So this is a revamped coaching staff, which gives me a little bit of excitement for. I'm really excited that Mario Cristobal is getting rid of his old traditional offensive philosophy because his offensive philosophy has done nothing but held back the previous quarterbacks that he had. I mean, look at Justin Herbert. Justin Herbert was way better his first season starting for the L.A. Chargers than he was during his whole entire career at Oregon, especially when Mario Cristobal took over the reins and the offense that he ran held back Justin Herbert. And the offense that Josh Gaddis was running under Mario Cristobal just completely held back this entire offense. So I'm glad that Mario Cristobal went out and hired an offensive coordinator that's going to run a more modernized offense. This offense that Shannon Dawson is supposed to be running is going to be a lot similar to what Rhett Lashley ran when he was back calling plays for this program a couple of years back. It's like an air raid spread attack. 
And this is an offense that is going to be able to get the most out of Tyler Van Dyke. He's going to be pretty comfortable in this offense. And this offense also should get the most out of this wide receiver room. The offensive line should be really good. Mario Cristobal is a former offensive lineman himself. And his offensive lines at Oregon normally were typically really good so this season you have a really good offensive tackle and zion nelson who should end up being a high nfl draft pick come next year you got two really good offensive linemen out of the transfer portal one offensive lineman in particular that many hurricanes fans were really excited about getting was javion cohen who transferred from alabama so he's going to have a really big impact on this offensive line this should be one of the better offensive lines in the ACC this season the receiving core should be pretty nice now it doesn't have a lot of elite talent but it does have enough talent to get the job done Jacoby George he had a really good spring I think he should end up breaking out you still do have Xavier Restrepo what the hell happened to him last season like this dude was pretty good prior to 2022 I guess we can blame that on Josh Gaddis too. You do have Henry Paris. I like this man's game a lot. This dude is a truck. I mean, this dude is really hard to bring down once he gets a full head of steam. He was averaging 5.7 yards per carry. That's only five yards per attempt. That means if you give this boy the rock three times, he was averaging the first down every three carries. And I'm pretty sure he's going to have a really better season this year compared to what he had last year with Rooster transferring out the program and joining Red Lashley down there at SMU. But what really has me excited about Miami going into this season really is this defense. Yeah, you bring in a new defensive coordinator, but you have one of the best safety duos in all of college football and Cameron Kitchens and James Williams. And what's really disappointing is that nobody is really giving this safety duo the credit they deserve. Both of these guys are going to end up playing on Sundays. James Williams was a really highly touted guy coming out of high school. I'm not really somebody who follows high school recruiting all that much because it's just too much drama for me. Like anytime a guy decommits that I really like, I'd be like, damn, bro, like I wish he would have stayed. So I just don't really follow high school recruiting all that much. But I was really happy when we got James Williams because a lot of Florida fans wanted him too so anytime we can keep a guy from going to a rival school I'm always going to be happy about that Leonard Taylor was also somebody who was really highly talented coming out of high school he's been winning the program for a couple of years also this should be the best season of his collegiate career and this is somebody who potentially could end up being a first round draft pick he has the kind of talent to go in the first round of the NFL draft it just really depends on if this new defense a coordinator is going to be able to get the most out of him you also got Devonte brown who was really good at the university of central florida he comes home to miami i believe that he's going to end up being a fantastic addition to this secondary remind you this is the same secondary that was allowing middle tennessee to bond them for 71 yard touchdowns so his services are most definitely going to be needed and i think that miami at the bare minimum, should at least be able to win six games. Like, is it realistic for me to expect Miami football to be able to win six games? I mean, can we even do that anymore? It's like the level of expectation just seems to go down year in and year out. It's like we went from being in the Orange Bowl, getting blasted by Wisconsin under Mark Rick, 
to going five and seven, not even making it to a ball game and getting blown out by Duke. Like expectations have drastically decreased year after year after year. And I'm going to set my expectations at six wins just because I don't want to get disappointed anymore. You know what they say? If you want to avoid disappointment, don't have high expectations. And it seems like every time I have high expectations for this program, they just let me down. But you think I should be used to it because that's all this program has done over the last decade that I've been a fan. And you may be asking yourself, JT, why did you even become a fan of the Miami Hurricanes? And I kind of ask myself that question every time I watch Miami take an L last season. But the reason for it was because of Duke Johnson. Plus, I used to love using them on the old NCAA games like NCAA and Duke Johnson are the reason why I'm a Miami Hurricanes fan. If it wasn't for those two things, I probably would be a fan of somebody else, bro. But I'm loyal to all of my teams. This isn't the only team that I support that's down in the gutter right now. I'm also a Chicago Bulls fan, so I'm just used to all my teams just letting me down year in and year out. But I think Miami should at least be able to win six games. I mean, week one, you got to play Miami of Ohio. Like, who's excited about that? The Battle of Miamis. Who's the real Miami? Miami of Ohio? Or the Miami Hurricanes? I pray to God we don't lose to Miami of Ohio, man. If we lose to Miami of Ohio, I don't want to hear no more excuses from Mario Cristobal, man. F a rebuilding year. You better beat Miami of Ohio, bro, for the title of the real Miami. Will the real Miami please, please stand up? Then you got to play Bethune-Cookman. At least you know that Miami's good to block Bethune-Cookman. Then you got to go on the road and play Temple, which is really weird. I mean, why are we going on the road to play Temple? I don't know. Then you play Georgia Tech, the University of Virginia, and Boston College. GT, UVA, and Boston College should be three of the worst programs in the ACC this year. So Miami should be able to beat those three teams. Plus, they should be able to beat Miami of Ohio, Bethune, Cookman, and Temple. So that should at least get Miami to six wins. Now, where are the other wins going to come from? I don't really know. And I don't really want to try to make any predictions because I'm not super confident. I think Texas A&M is going to be really good this season. I expect them to beat us because I think they're going to end up competing for the SEC West this year. As long as Jimbo Fisher allows Bobby Petrino to call the plays, I think that Miami should lose that game. I think Texas A&M just has a way better team. They're one of the more talented teams in the SEC this year. I think they should win. Now, UNC, you're going on the road to play Drake May. That game could go either way, depending on what kind of version of the Miami Hurricanes we see this year. You got NC State, FSU, and Louisville with the upset master at head coach and Jeff Brom, who leaves Purdue to go back to a school that many people wanted him at. So for Miami, I think the floor is six wins. The ceiling is probably eight or nine at best. I don't think they're going to be able to beat Texas A&M or FSU. Not saying they don't have a chance, but I'm just not expecting that just because I'm not trying to get my expectations high for this team, man. Like, the Miami Hurricanes used to be one of the best teams in college football. We used to have Ray Lewis, Michael Irvin, 
Sean Taylor. We used to have some real dogs playing for this program, man. Like, it's so embarrassing when you go back and you think about what Miami used to be and look at what this program's doing now. These boys lost to Duke. And I know it was last season, but I'm still not over it. I'm still not over it. Like, Mario Cristobal was supposed to be an upgrade for Manny Diaz. That's why you never do people wrong, people. That's why they say God don't like ugly, man. Like, oh my God, losing the Duke fam in the rebuilding year? I mean, that's how low Miami football has stooped down to? Losing the freaking Duke? And then saying this is a rebuilding year? Like, when has that ever been acceptable? I mean, I'm just glad that it's a new year and the start of the new college football season is just around the corner, man. If I had to give you guys a record prediction for Miami this season, I probably would go 7-5. and five. And I'll take 7-5 and five versus what the hell we put on the field last year, even though the expectation at the University of Miami should always be ACC championships. We're in South Florida. You drive 45 to an hour away from the University of Miami up north, you're going to be riding Broward. Where all the dogs at? Broward produces some dogs, man. You drive six more hours up north, you're in the city of Jacksonville. You're in the root of all the talent in Florida. Orlando. I mean, there's no reason why Miami should struggle to at least win six games this year. This should at least be a seven-win team. Potentially, the ceiling could be eight wins. I think nine wins is pushing it. But I'm not saying they don't have a chance to be UNC and NC State. Because they most definitely can, and they most definitely can beat Louisville. So I think that maybe, I'm not even going to say 10 wins. I think 10 wins is just me being a little bit overly optimistic. That's if everything just completely goes right, and this program just does a complete 180. But 7-5 is how good I'm expecting the Miami Hurricanes to be this season. Hopefully, they don't end up pooping a bit against a Temple, Georgia Tech, and the University of Virginia in Miami of Ohio, bruh. Because if they end up struggling against Miami of Ohio or Temple of Georgia Tech, then this program really has hit rock bottom. Hell, we might need to end up hiring The Rock to be the head coach. If anything, shoot, can't be no worse than what happened last season. I mean, if Mario Cristobal can't end up getting this program the 7-8 wins this season, then we're probably really going to have to reevaluate ourselves. We're really going to have to start asking ourselves, maybe this just is what Miami football is. Maybe we're just a program that's just stuck in mediocrity for the rest of our lifetimes as Miami Hurricanes fans, man. And I, I hope not. I hope that's not the case. But that's kind of what it's looking like, man. Like only one 10-win season and what, how many years? I mean, this program right now has stunk Ever since I became a fan, maybe I cursed this program. Who knows? Maybe if I would have became a fan of somebody else, Miami wouldn't have been so bad as what they've been over the last decade. I've been a fan of this team. But when are they going to give me something to root for? The only time I have something to root for is when these boys had the turnover chain, man. Shoot, the least they could have done was bring that back. Mario Cristobal came in and he got rid of the turnover chain and everybody was thrilled about it. I wasn't. Shoot, if we're going to lose and get blown out by Duke, at least let us lose in style. At least if we lose, at least if we get blown out by Duke and we force a couple of turnovers, at least we can look good doing so with a lot of jewelry around our neck, a lot of bling bling around our neck. At least we can lose with some flash. At least we can lose with some style. 
So that's how good I'm expecting the Miami Hurricanes to be this upcoming college football season and 2023. 7-5 is probably my record prediction. If you were putting a gun in my head and you would force me to give you one, I think the floor is probably six wins. The ceiling is eight, nine wins at best if the football gods just bless us and they just feel bad for us. Brian Flores was a really huge addition by the Minnesota Vikings. Now, last year, the Minnesota Vikings defense was absolutely terrible, man. Like, these boys got carved up by Daniel Jones in the wild card round, man. Like, I know you Vikings fans probably want to forget this nightmare, but we're right back talking about it again. This defense got carved up by Daniel freaking Jones, dog. Patrick Peterson. Patrick Peterson, one of the greatest cornerbacks of this past decade, was getting shredded by Isaiah Hodgins. I forget about that. I did not forget about that. Isaiah Hodgins was cooking Patrick Peterson. How many of you guys knew who the hell Isaiah Hodgins was before that playoff game? Hell, Patrick Peterson knew who he was because that wasn't the first time he was getting cooked by Isaiah Hodgins. And I mean, Isaiah Hodgins, he's a solid player at least now, but Patrick Peterson, you just don't expect that out of him. And now Patrick Peterson has left Minnesota, and you want to know what's so ironic? Guess who Patrick Peterson plays for now? My favorite team, the Pittsburgh Steelers. That's so crazy. It's so crazy how the power of the universe works. Now he's playing for the Pittsburgh Steelers, man, and Steelers fans are really excited about this. They were talking about some, man, he had a really good season, JT. He had a lot of interceptions. Who cares? We get mad at Trayvon Diggs for getting cooked, but yet having a lot of interceptions. But yet, we can't keep this same energy with Patrick Peterson, dog. This man was getting cooked by Isaiah Hodgins. So, he's gone. The Minnesota Vikings bring in Brian Flores. He's going to be a huge upgrade from the previous defensive coordinator who they had last season, who was running his own iteration of that Vic Fangio kind of defense it was really conservative didn't really blitz a lot and that thing was getting absolutely dotted up bro Danny Dines was really living up to that nickname and the wild card round of that playoff game man and Brian Flores he was on the Steelers staff last year and Mike Tomlin absolutely loved this guy man like if you listen to Mike Tomlin talked about Brian Flores he held this guy in high regard man like when Brian Flores First got fired by Miami. Mike Tomlin immediately just hopped on it. He was like, man, we got a really good chance to get a really good football coach, man. You know how Mike Tomlin talks, man. Like, Mike Tomlin really loved Brian Flores. And this dude had a pretty big impact on the Steelers' defense, even though he didn't really call the plays. But this guy was kind of doing a lot of things for the Steelers' defense. Even though he had the title of defensive assistant, linebacker coach, he really was doing a lot more than that. Mike Tomlin just assigned him a title just to assign him a title when really he was just doing a lot for the Steelers defense. And the linebacker play was, it was all right. But overall, I think the defense played at a pretty high level. There were definitely a lot of players who their play elevated with Brian Flores being on the staff. And with him leaving, going to the Minnesota Vikings, man, like this is one of the best offseason staff hires in the whole entire NFL. You already know that under Kevin O'Connell, this offense is still going to be really good, even though you have checked down Charlie and Sir Kirk Cousins. This defense has a lot of players who I think are going to end up fitting in really well 
and this Brian Flores aggressive style defense. Like the Dolphins, they hired Vic Vangio, and the Minnesota Vikings, they hired Brian Flores. And it's really interesting because Vic Vangio, the kind of defense that he ran, kind of gets used by the majority of teams in today's NFL, but everybody has their own version of it. And the defensive coordinator who the Vikings had last year, I guess he was running one of the worst versions of it because it didn't stop anybody. You were getting cooked by Daniel Jones. So you bring in Brian Flores, and his defense philosophy is completely different. It's like a complete 360, a complete 180, because you go from a super conservative defensive coordinator to one of the most aggressive defensive minds in the whole entire NFL. Like, do you remember when Brian Flores was the head coach of the Miami Dolphins and they were playing Lamar Jackson that game and they blitzed this dude literally the whole entire game? Go back and watch that Brett Coleman breakdown when I think the title of the video is Miami ran the same blitz like 33 or 35 times against the Ravens. Like the Ravens had no answer for that. So if you're a Vikings fan, you should be feeling really happy about the addition of Brown Flores. And I was listening to this guy, his interviews. Like this dude sounds really grateful for the opportunity to be the D.C. up there in Minnesota. And this is a really good opportunity for him to prove himself. And to end up getting another shot at being a head coach because this guy is a fantastic football coach. Not too often do you see too many head coaches get fired after having back-to-back winning seasons. Two of the best seasons that the Miami Dolphins have had in recent memory. And their defenses under Brian Flores were absolutely phenomenal. They were aggressive. They were really good at stopping the run. They were able to get after the quarterback. They were disciplined. They were well coached. They were fundamentally sound. I was listening to one of Brian Flores' press conferences and another interview that he did, and he put a lot of emphasis on cornerbacks being able to get off blocks. You don't really hear that all too often, a head coach or a defensive coordinator talking about the importance of his DBs being able to get off blocks because in today's NFL, most teams looking for cornerbacks who are just good in coverage Who gives a hell about how good they are tackling? Hell, most cornerbacks aren't really all that willing to be willing tacklers at time. And for Brian Flores defensively, you know that you're going to have a really physical defense. And some players I'm really excited to see in this defense is second-year safety, Lewis Seen, who barely played in his rookie season. He only played in a handful of games. I believe he went down like week four of the season and he was out for the rest of the year. This dude coming out of Georgia was a headhunter, man. This is one of those safeties that if you're a slot receiver coming across the middle, you think twice every time you catch the football with this dude coming at you. He's also really good and man coverage. He has great athleticism. Now, he does have to get better with his tackling technique because one thing that a lot of scouts pointed out, and I noticed this too watching him play, like this dude hits high, and when you hit high in the NFL, most of the times it ends up you getting put on your you-know-what. So I think Brian Floyd's going to be able to get that cleaned up, and he's going to have Lewis Seen playing at a Pro Bowl level. What about second-year cornerback Andrew Booth out of Clemson? He also was a really physical player coming out of Clemson. This dude was somebody who was really good in man coverage, really good in press coverage as well. He's one of the more physical cornerbacks that were coming out of that draft. Him with Brian Flores is going to be a really good pairing. You also do still have 
one of the best safeties to ever play this game and Harrison Smith although he's getting up there in age he's still a top five safety in the game it just seems like father time just can't slow this brother down you sign Byron Murphy in free agency he's going to be your slot cornerback I felt like he was pretty decent for the Arizona Cardinals I won't say he was you know anything crazy but I think he was decent at times for Arizona my problem with Byron Murphy is that He's fairly inconsistent. So can Brian Flores get more consistency out of Byron Murphy? And then you got rookie cornerback Makai Blackman, who could be a gem for Minnesota under Brian Flores' system because this dude is the definition of super aggressive, man. Like, if you watch this dude's film, this guy was super aggressive, super physical at times. You probably could say that he probably should have been called for pass interference on the majority of the reps that he had. So if he can get his technique and his fundamentals cleaned up, this dude is going to be an absolute steal for the Minnesota Vikings and Blind Flores in this defense. But you also have to wonder, where's the pass rush coming in from? You still have Daniel Hunter, you sign Marcus Davenport, and free agency. You don't really know what you're going to get out of him. He's one of the biggest boomer bus players in the NFL you don't know if this guy's going to give you 10 sacks or two sacks but I think Brian Flores is going to be able to get the most out of this defense and this defense most definitely should be tremendously improved compared to what it was last season with that conservative defense that they were running like anytime you're getting cooked by Daniel Jones dog like you got to find a way to move on you got to find a way to improve the defense man and I'm not trying to slander Daniel Jones but I mean like you just don't really expect for Daniel Jones just to dot you up like the way he was doing Minnesota in the wild card round but overall with the addition of Brian Flores this defense should go from being near the bottom of the league like it was last season to at least being 13th or 12th in the NFL now potentially this could be a top 10 defense depending on if everything goes right but my realistic expectations for this defense is for it to be a top 12, top 13 unit. They're probably going to be like top 16 and points per game allowed. I don't think they're going to allow a lot of yards. You're definitely going to be really good inside the red zone. You should be really good at getting off the field on third down. With the fact that Brian Flores just throws so many different blitz packages at you. He gives you so many different looks. Now... The only downfall of Brian Flores' defense that a lot of people point out is that you're asking a lot out of your defensive backs to be able to play a lot of man covers because anytime you're sending a lot of these blitzes, oftentimes you're going to be put in cover one, cover zero situations where you may not have too much help over the middle of the field. And when you look at this NFC North division with the Detroit Lions, them boys with Jared Goff, they can throw that thing. With Ben Johnson... And all of the explosiveness and talent that they have on that offense, I'm definitely going to be interested in seeing how Brian Flores ends up being able to find a way to outcoach Ben Johnson because Ben Johnson is doing that thing up there in the Motor City. And the Motor City right now has a lot of momentum. Based on what that offense did last year, Jared Goff was one of the hottest QBs at the end of last season. So for Minnesota... The downfall of this defense is that you don't really know how good your cornerbacks are going to be in certain situations when you're going against some of the better quarterbacks in the league. But for the most part, Brian Flores, this is somebody who has a proven track record. 
dating back from his time being on New England's coaching staff, his long years the D.C., they had a fantastic defense. Their defense improved tremendously the year that he was calling the plays. The Dolphins' defense always was elite under Brian Flores to the Lich. So Brian Flores, I think he's going to be a fantastic addition for the Minnesota Vikings. Now, when the Kansas City Chiefs traded for Kadarius Toney last season, I was like, oh, snap. Here, here the New York Giants go, giving Patrick Mahomes and Andy Reid more weapons when they already have a bag full of riches. And Kadarius Toney, he had a pretty small role in this offense last year. You got to look at when they acquired him near the middle of the season. So he was still learning the playbook on the fly. He was still learning and getting chemistry down packed with Patrick Mahomes. Andy Reid was still trying to figure out how to maximize his talent and how to get the most of them. But you saw what he did in the Super Bowl when he had that big electric punt return. And Kadarius Toney, man, if this guy can stay healthy, he can end up being a little bit similar to what Tyreek Hill was. Now, he doesn't have the kind of speed that Tyreek Hill had. Nobody really has. Tyreek Hill is the fastest player in the NFL. But when you look at what he can do after the catch, he's going to give you a lot of those big explosive plays with the ball in his hands, like what Tyreek Hill used to give you. And plus, even though... Tyreek Hill is way faster than Kadarius Toney. This dude is way more stickier and shiftier than what Tyreek Hill was. I mean, this dude is the definition of the human joystick. You ever play Madden? You just used to use the juke button on willy-nilly, and I think they have something called the jukebox skill or signature skill or something like that. That's what Kadarius Toney has just in real life. This dude is one of the most elusive football players in the NFL right now. All you got to do is find a way to give this guy the ball. You can get him involved on jet sweeps, gadget plays, bubble screens, screens, slants. It's just anytime this guy gets the ball in his hands, he just makes something big happen after the catch. And if you're wondering... If he can end up being the number one wide receiver in Kansas City, there's a strong chance he can. I mean, the talent's there. He's a really good route runner. I think he has pretty solid hands for the most part. There's not really too much that Kadarius Toney can do other than being able to stay healthy, which was a large reason why he ended up getting traded by the New York Giants. He couldn't stay on the field. And you got to remember that this guy was a first-round pick not too long ago. So for the Giants to be willing to part ways with them, Considering how bad their wide receiving core was, they kind of had their wide receiving core schemed up and playing at a high level due to Brian Dable's offensive. Um, their offense kind of was really good and elevated due to how good of an OC Brian Dable was. He was able to elevate the talent of the wide receivers, even though it wasn't all that great. So you look at Kadarius Toney. You're giving him to Andy Reid, one of the greatest offensive minds to ever play this game. You're going to have Patrick Mahomes throwing him the football, the best QB in the game right now. Like, all Kadarius Tony needs to be able to do is to stay healthy. And this dude should have a breakout season for the Kansas City Chiefs. If you're somebody who's trying to figure out what's some sleepers, the target, and the middle portion of your fantasy football drafts, Kadarius Tony most definitely is that guy who you want to look out for. This dude can do it all. He's a human joystick. It makes him a yak monster. This is somebody who, at the University of Florida, was one of my favorite players to watch, who's like a way better version of Tavon Austin, in my opinion. He's what we all thought Tavon Austin would have been if he was successful at the NFL level. 
So for Kadarius Tony, man, I expect this dude to have a breakout year for Kansas City in 2023, man. The only thing he really needs to be able to do is to stay healthy. There's so many creative ways that Kansas City can find a way to use this man. Plus, you also got to remember that defenses already have to account for Travis Kelsey. Then you also have Justin Ross, who could end up having a big impact on this offense. You still do have Sky Moore going into year two. So there are a lot of young players on this offense that could end up being in for big seasons. But I think Kadarius Tony is going to be that guy who everybody's going to be paying attention to just because of how talented he is. This dude was a first-round pick for a reason. And during his time for the New York Jets, when he was on the field, he was really productive. This dude had one game during his rookie season when he damn near went for almost 200 yards in the game. That's just how good this guy is when he really gets going. So if Andy Reid and Patrick Mahomes can find a way to get this dude rolling in this offense, the NFL better watch out. The biggest question that people have about Kansas City going into this season is going to be who's going to step up at wide receiver. If Kadarius Tony can stay healthy, I think he's going to be that guy who ends up having that number one role in that offense and he could be used in a similar way like how Tyreek Hill was before he got traded to the Miami Dolphins I want to rank my top 10 college football quarterbacks since 2010 now I saw on three do this on their social media platforms and I just strongly disagree with it so I said you know what why not me come up with my own top 10 college football QBs since 2010 this ranking is solely based on my opinion, so if you disagree, I would love to see your top 10 down in the comment section down below if you're listening to this on YouTube. The guy I'm going to start off with is RG3, Robert Griffin III. At Baylor, this dude was one of the most accurate dual-threat quarterbacks in college football at the time. He was completing over 70% of his passes the year he won the Heisman. He had 37 touchdowns, only 6 interceptions. So not only was this guy a really accurate passer, but he also was a fantastic decision-maker. And then, he also had 669 rushing yards on the ground and 10 TDs. He ended up winning the Heisman Trophy in 2011. And the reason why he's not a lot higher on this list is just because he didn't really have the kind of individual success that some of the other guys ranked higher than him did he wasn't able to get Baylor into the college football national championship picture even though they were really good under RG3 it's just that there were certain times there were big games where he kind of wasn't able to get it done. It wasn't mostly due to him it's just the fact that Baylor overall as a program they kind of had a peak and their peak kind of wasn't national championship level. Their peak kind of was Alamo Bowl, which they went to under RG3. So RG3 comes in at number 10 for me. I really loved watching R3, RG3. He was one of my favorite players when I first started watching college football around 2010, 2011. He was on the cover of NCAA 13. So that also made me gravitate towards him a lot. At number nine, I got Marcus Mariota. Marcus Mariota was really good at the University of Oregon, especially under Chip Kelly. And 
a lot of people kind of, I think, underrate Marcus Mariota. When you think about Heisman Trophy winners, if you were to rank them in order from best to worst, like a lot of people probably would have Marcus Mariota way low on that tier. But Marcus Mariota, man, was a really phenomenal dual threat quarterback. I think he was even better than RG3. This dude was an even better decision maker than Robert Griffin III. The year he won the Heisman, this dude threw 42 touchdowns, only had four interceptions. That's one of the best touchdown to interception ratios in the whole entire college football that year. Not just that, but this dude was really deadly when he decided to tuck the football and run. Now, he didn't have the kind of shiftiness and agility that guys like Lamar Jackson and RG3 did. He just had really fantastic straight line speed. But I remember watching Marcus Mariota go crazy and those fantastic uniforms that Oregon always seems to have. And when he ended up out-dueling Jameis Winston in the college football semifinals, the first year the college football playoffs was implemented, that was one of the best matchups that I was excited to watch. And Marcus Mariota and Oregon, they just completely clobbered for the state that year. That was the year when Jameis Winston and FSU had all those damn comebacks. And the reason why I'm so high on Marcus Mariota is because... I was telling a lot of my homeboys at the time that FSU was going to lose that game because, you know, Florida State was kind of at their peak at that point. And I live in the state of Florida, so there were a lot of Seminole fans around me. And I was telling them leading up to that game that Marcus Mariota was going to dominate them and that they were going to get blown out. They weren't going to be able to come back against that Marcus Mariota and that Oregon offense. So Marcus Mariota comes in at number nine for me. At number eight, we're starting to really get into it now. Bryce Young, some of you guys may disagree with this. Some of y'all may be like, man, you got Bryce Young as your top 10 QB since 2010? Hell yeah. Like, have y'all watched Alabama football the last two years? Bryce Young carried these boys. Nick Saban, the year they lost to Georgia in the national championship game, he called that a rebuilding year. Alabama was not expected to even beat Georgia in the SEC championship game. And when you think about most of the losses that Alabama has had with Bryce Young being the starting quarterback, I believe most of them have come with this dude not even being on the field. You remember when they lost to LSU last year to that two-point conversion that ultimately won the game for them? Bryce Young wasn't on the field. He didn't have a chance to clap back. But it, was, it seems like every time Bryce Young was put in a high-pressure situation and he had to produce, this guy came up every single time. This guy just is cold-blooded. I think he's one of the clutchest quarterbacks in the history of college football. Anytime Bryce Young had the ball in his hands to win the game, he came through. You remember that game against Texas? I mean, this dude is just unbelievable. And this dude's body is built like a damn preschooler. And yet, this dude's football IQ is just out of this world. Not just that, he's a fantastic passer. He makes great decisions with the football. There's a reason why he was number one overall pick by the Carolina Panthers. Like, I kind of think that Bryce Young is really underrated. And you think about how guys like Kyler Murray, how well they performed, but Bryce Young was even better than him. I mean, this dude, Bryce Young, was a real cerebral quarterback. And I think over the next decade, I don't think he's going to end up getting the proper recognition. A lot of people think 
oh, you play for Alabama, so you're automatically playing with the best talent. That's not the case all the time. Go back and watch the last two years of Alabama football. It was the Bryce Young show. That's the reason why he won the Heisman Trophy in 2021. And it wasn't really a huge discussion about it, man. Like, this dude was carrying Alabama on his shoulders. Yeah, he had some good players that he was throwing the football to. He had John Mechie, Jamison Williams. But if you take Bryce Young off of these two past years, Alabama squads, do you think they go as far as what they did? Probably not. Remember, Nick Saban considered 2021 to be a rebuilding year. Going into the SEC championship and 2021, they were coming off a, what, four overtime win against Auburn? Their offensive line struggled for the majority of that whole entire season. Like, Bryce Young was really the glue that was keeping Alabama together. And I'm really intrigued in seeing, in 2023, how Alabama's going to perform without Bryce Young. Because last season, outside of Bryce Young, the only dude who he really had was Shamir Gibbs, who was coming up and being consistent. So many people, when they think about Alabama football, they just automatically assume that whoever's playing quarterback is just throwing to the best talent. They just have the best offensive line, the best coaching. And Bryce Young didn't really have that. And when you think about all of the quarterbacks that Nick Saban has had during his time at Alabama, Without a doubt, Bryce Young is the most talented quarterback. He's better than Tua, Jalen Hurts, Mac Jones, A.J. McCarron, and whoever else Nick Saban had playing that QB during his tenure at Alabama. Like, I really think that Bryce Young is just incredibly underrated and overlooked when you think about some of the best quarterbacks who have came through college football. I think that Bryce Young probably isn't going to get a lot of agreement for being on this top 10. But when you go back and you look at what he meant to Nick Saban and that Alabama football program, he really held them boys together, man. Because if it wasn't for him, I don't think Alabama would have made it to the playoffs in 2021. And I definitely don't think they would have been as good as what they were last year. They probably would have lost three, maybe four games last season had it not been for Bryce Young. Number seven, I have Lamar Action Jackson, man. Like, Lamar Jackson, bro, this dude, he kind of came out of nowhere. Even though I was already a little bit hip to Lamar Jackson from his freshman year, this dude took college football by storm. You remember that big game when he went off against FSU when they were like the second best team in college football at the time, this dude had 146 rushing yards and four rushing touchdowns, bruh. Like Jimbo Fisher and Florida State's defense had no answer for Lamar Jackson, dog. Like Lamar Jackson was a one-man wrecking crew at the University of Louisville. And there are other quarterbacks who are ahead of Lamar Jackson who also carry their programs. Lamar Jackson probably would have been a lot higher on this list if he was able to get Louisville to an ACC championship game. But this dude was one of the best quarterbacks, not just one of the best, but one of the most talented quarterbacks that we've had in college football since 2010, man. This guy was a pretty solid passer, even though he wasn't as good as a passer at Louisville like he is now at the NFL level. He still was pretty consistent. His wide receiving core wasn't really good. I don't even think that Louisville had any other NFL wide receivers on that roster that are playing in the NFL currently. 
And then once Lamar Jackson ended up leaving Louisville's program, that whole entire Louisville football team just completely derailed and Bobby Petrino ultimately ended up getting fired. But the year Lamar Jackson won the Heisman Trophy, bro, like everybody was talking about Lamar. This dude had 51 total touchdowns, bro. This dude was one of the most electric players in college football in the last decade, bro. Like Lamar Jackson kind of put Louisville on the map in a sense. Now, even though Louisville already had some pretty good quarterback play prior to Lamar Jackson taking over the reins there and Teddy Bridge were the like, Many people started paying attention to Louisville when Lamar Jackson started going off. Do you remember that incredible duel him and Deshaun Watson had when Louisville matched up against Clemson? Like, that was one of the better games that I can remember being played in the ACC. That's when we had peak ACC football. That's when the ACC was at its best. Lamar Jackson was a real dog at the University of Louisville, man. Like, you probably could make the argument and say that Lamar Jackson deserves to be a lot higher on this list. Like, if I was making this list solely off of talent, Lamar Jackson probably would be second. I can't tell y'all who's number one is, but you guys probably already know who number one is going to be. But Lamar Jackson is one of the most talented quarterbacks that ever come through college football since 2010. He had an incredible arm. He was a fantastic athlete. This dude ran for, what, over 15, 1,400 yards in back-to-back seasons? Bro, like, defenses had no answers for Lamar Jackson. Now, late in the season at times, he ended up struggling against Kentucky. He ended up having a really awful bowl game against LSU. But this man, Lamar Jackson carry the Louisville football program on his shoulders, man. And the only reason I have him above Bryce Young is just because this dude was way more dynamic than what Bryce Young was, bro. Like, Lamar Jackson, every time this dude had a big rushing touchdown, it was going viral on social media, man. Like, in 2016, the year Lamar Jackson won Heisman, bro, you just could not escape Lamar Jackson. Every time you checked Twitter, it was Lamar Jackson on your news feed. Every time you was on Instagram, it was Lamar Jackson, bro. Like, this dude was one of the most polarizing players in college football in the past decade, bro. Like, Lamar Jackson was a super incredible player during his time at Louisville, man. He's one of my favorite players currently in the NFL. And a lot of people doubted Lamar Jackson going into the NFL. He was the last pick of the draft by the Baltimore Ravens when he came out. So this man, Lamar Jackson, man, this dude is number seven for me. One of the most electric quarterbacks in all of college football since 2010. Probably the most electric if we're just going off of pure skill set, man. Like this dude was probably the most elusive quarterback out of all of these QBs that I have on this list, bro. Like this dude was fast. Some people say that he ran like a 4-2, maybe a high 4-3, but his acceleration, the way that players and opposing defensive coordinators describe it, bro, they make it seem like this dude is like a Lamborghini. Like, once this dude gets going, it's like 0-100 to 100 in a snap of a finger, bro. I loved watching Lamar Jackson play at Louisville. Number six, man, I got that boy Deshaun Watson, bro. Deshaun Watson was really him. And when you think about the kind of quarterback play that Clemson's program was receiving. You think about Trevor Lawrence, but before Trevor Lawrence, you had Deshaun Watson. And this dude gave Alabama a lot of problems. A lot of problems, bruh. And my guy Juice, a.k.a. Jamont, 
He even makes the argument and says that Deshaun Watson should have won a Heisman Trophy over Derrick Henry, which I strongly disagree with, but I understand where it's coming from. Deshaun Watson was a real dude during his time at the University of Clemson, and not just that, but this dude was really electric. He was really dynamic. Now, he wasn't as dynamic as Lamar Jackson, but what separated him from Lamar Jackson is that in big games, Deshaun Watson always came up big. Even when they lost to Alabama in the college football playoffs their first go-around, you kind of already had a feeling that there is going to be a rematch the following season after. And then they match up against Alabama in the national championship game, and they end up winning that thing thanks to a last-minute touchdown. He rolls out, hits, um, who was it, Hunter Renfro in the corner of the end zone for the touchdown and end up dethroning the big bad of college football and the Alabama Crimson Tide. Like, Deshaun Watson, man, like, he's kind of a pop culture figure when you think of Clemson football. Like, when you think of Clemson football, who's the first player that comes to your mind? It probably has to be either Deshaun Watson, DeAndre Hopkins, Sammy Watkins, or Trevor Lawrence. It has to be one of those four players, but to me, it's Deshaun Watson. Not just was he one of the most productive players in college football and one of the most talented, but this dude was one of the most clutchest QBs every time the game was on the line. He came through in big situations. Deshaun Watson rose to the occasion. He comes in at number six for me, man, and even to this day in the NFL, he still is rising to the occasion. Even though last season, 2022, didn't really go all that well with the Cleveland Browns, he was a little bit rusty. But Deshaun Watson, bro, he was him when he was playing for Houston, or for Clemson, excuse me, and Clemson had a really good run of quarterbacks. Before Deshaun Watson, you had Taj Boyd. When I end up making my list of college football's most underrated QBs, Taj Boyd is most definitely going to be on that list. But Clemson had a really good run of QBs, man. Taj Boyd, Deshaun Watson, who really Deshaun Watson kind of kicked the door down for Clemson. When Deshaun Watson ended up taking over the reins at QB for Clemson, that's really where or when Clemson started to solidify themselves as a national powerhouse. Before Deshaun Watson... Clemson was really just known as being a really good program in the ACC, being really consistent. But on the national level, they weren't really as big until Deshaun Watson came over. And then Deshaun Watson leads them to the college football playoffs, then eventually leads them in the national championship. And then that's where everybody starts to recognize Clemson of being one of the more dominant programs in the sport. Clemson wasn't a blue blood program when Deshaun Watson took over that thing. Yeah, they had some really good receivers and a really good offense, but Deshaun Watson really propelled Clemson into the national spotlight. Now we're about to get into my top five, and there's going to be some really heated discussions about this one, but I got to go with Baker Mayfield, bro. There's no way you can tell me that Baker Mayfield was not him. I know a lot of you guys don't like Baker Mayfield. He hasn't really been a good NFL QB. His NFL career hasn't really panned out all that well. But this dude, when he was playing for Oklahoma, bro, this dude was super electric, bro. This dude did nothing but produce the three years he was starting at QB for the Sooners. You remember that classic game that Oklahoma had in one of the semifinal games against Georgia? When they were up big and then Georgia climbed back into that game and they won it in overtime when they had Jake Fromm at QB. 
I remember when Baker Mayfield in Oklahoma, early into one season, they had beat Ohio State. And then they went into the middle of the field and they planted their flag. That was one of the most memorable moments that I remember in the past decade of college football. And the reason why I keep saying the past decade is because I'm only 21 years old. So a lot of you guys probably been watching football way longer than I've been around. But Baker Mayfield, to me, is one of the most memorable college football quarterbacks that I think of when I think about some of the best to ever play since 2010. Baker Mayfield, say what you want to say about his NFL career, but when he was playing for Oklahoma, bruh, he was clicking on all cylinders, bruh. This dude was nearly a Heisman finalist the three years he was at Oklahoma. He did nothing but put up great numbers and came up big for Oklahoma and really big games and really big moments. There's not too many games that Baker Mayfield had at Oklahoma where he crapped the bid. And he wasn't the most dynamic athlete. He wasn't the most talented. As a matter of fact, this dude was a walk-on. This dude played with a certain intensity. He played with a certain chip on his shoulder that I don't think too many quarterbacks on this list really had. This dude was really driven. He was the prime definition of hard work and dedication. He had to walk on at Texas Tech, transfers to Oklahoma, and I believe he had to walk on again. And he was on starting like Baker Mayfield was the true underdog story of college football when he was playing at Oklahoma. You talk about really rooting for the Cinderella, bro. Like a lot of people were really rooting for Baker Mayfield. You may not have liked Baker Mayfield because he came off super cocky at times, really immature. But damn it, bro, Baker Mayfield was a real dog at Oklahoma, bro. When I think of Oklahoma football, I think of Baker Mayfield planting that flag in the middle of Buckeye Stadium. Baker Mayfield was really him when he was playing at Oklahoma. Rather you like him or not, you got to admit that Baker Mayfield was a damn good quarterback at the collegiate level. Coming in at number four, I got Johnny Football. Johnny Football, man. Like, Johnny Manziel, I was really hurt when Johnny Manziel became a bust for the Cleveland Browns. But that really effed me up. I was really messed up about Johnny Manziel. Like, Johnny Manziel probably has to be one of the most popular football players in the history of college football, bro. Like, Johnny Football, the house that Johnny built at Texas A&M, he really put Texas A&M in the national spotlight. Because think about what happened to Texas A&M when Johnny Manziel left for the NFL. Kevin Sumlin, he ended up proving to not be a good coach. And not too soon after, he got fired. But when Johnny Manziel was at the helm at QB, bro, this dude was one of the most popular players in the sport. If they had NIL back then when Johnny Manziel was playing, without a doubt, he would have had a $1 million NIL deal. This dude would have been plastered on so many commercials. And he really, in my opinion, put Texas A&M on the map. And some of you guys may not remember this, but at the time when Johnny Manziel was the starting QB, for Texas A&M, they had just entered the SEC from the Big 12, them in Missouri, and he was going ham. You remember that play when he had ended up breaking out of that one sack by that Alabama defender, and he ends up turning around and going backwards and then just throwing the football in the middle of the field. He was just like, F it, somebody down there. It was on third down, and then that dude, number 18, came down with it, and then the announcer was like, oh, my God, and I was like, oh, 
my God. Like, that boy Johnny Football was a real dog for real, man. That boy used to get Alabama a lot of problems. He used to have Nick Saban on the sideline sweating. Like, Nick Saban, every time they got done playing Texas A&M, he used to be like, whew. Johnny Manziel. Johnny Football, man. Like, y'all forget how big Johnny Manziel was. Like, some of the biggest, most popular college football players of my generation. Tim Tebow. Johnny Manziel, DeAnthony Thomas, Tavon Austin. Like, Johnny Manziel was really that dude for real when he was at Texas A&M. Like, he really put this program on the map. And if you're a Texas A&M fan, let me know if I'm tripping. But let's be honest, even though Texas A&M was solid, it's not like they were bums before Johnny Manziel was the QB, but it's not like too many people were talking about Texas A&M football on a national level until Johnny Manziel took over at QB. I'm going to just keep it a stack with you. Once Johnny Manziel left Texas A&M, I only kept up the program because I viewed the master team that had Johnny Manziel like QB. You can literally call Texas A&M their field that they play on the house that Johnny built because Johnny Manziel really is what gave Texas A&M all that national recognition. And even though this dude is one of the greatest busts in the history of the NFL, this dude's name still rain it still brings in numbers when you talk about it in a college football sense like if you bring a recruit to texas a and and they meet johnny manziel they're going to be like damn this is johnny football like johnny manziel is one of the greatest college football quarterbacks ever now i don't know where you rank him all time but he damn sure is up there in the top 10 bro like johnny manziel was a real dog for texas a and m and this man also had mike evans like, Johnny Manziel was one of the funnest players to watch in college football in the 2010s, bruh. Like, when you think of premier quarterback play in college football, you think Johnny Manziel. If you were to name your top five most memorable QBs that first come to your mind from the early 2010s, Johnny Manziel is up there on that list, bruh. This dude was giant, was ginormous. I mean, this dude was super popular. This dude was super fun to watch. He was dynamic. He was fun television. He just had a little bit of a different attitude to him, man. He was prime time. He was Hollywood. Shoot, you may not have liked Johnny Manziel because he was a huge party boy. But when this dude played for Texas A&M, this dude balled out. I loved watching Johnny Manziel. He was the reason in middle school I got number two. I was effed up by Johnny Manziel throwing up the show me the money signs. I remember when Johnny Manziel used to do this. He used to do this. Like, everybody used to go around the country doing this. Like, Drake mentioned, name dropped Johnny Manziel in a song, dog. Before this man even got drafted in the NFL. Draft Day by Drake. Look up Draft Day by Drake if you never heard that song. Draft Day, Johnny Manziel. Come on, man. Like, Johnny Manziel, regardless of how you view and how you feel about his NFL career, this one, this man had one of the greatest careers in college football. He was one of the most popular players to ever play the game of college football, man. And I know it's just my opinion, but I think the majority of you guys are going to agree with me on that. Johnny Manziel was a real animal when he was playing for Texas A&M, bro. Like, this dude had all kinds of crazy plays. I remember it was... One time, they were playing some team in a ball game. I think it was Louisiana Tech. I don't really remember it verbatim, but he ended up jumping over a defensive lineman and then ended up, like, throwing the ball. Like, oh, Johnny Manziel should be doing all kinds of crazy shit, dog. Johnny Manziel was one of the funnest players to watch 
when I was watching college football, at least when I first got into it in the early 2010s, man, like, he really is what made me a fan of college football. I was like, damn, you don't really be seeing this in the NFL. In the NFL, you just see fundamentally sound quarterback play. But in college football, you got this dude breaking out of the sacks, running backwards, tossing the ball in the middle of the field. Like, this man used to have me turned. I used to love watching Johnny Manziel play when I was legit, bro. I was real effed up about Johnny Manziel, for real. And a lot of people were really messed up about Johnny Manziel. Like, I was really rooting for bro to get right when he got drafted by the Cleveland Browns. Like, it really hurt me when he was tripping off the field, not being able to get right, and when he wasn't able to make it work as an NFL QB for the Browns. Like, I was really hurt about that. I really wanted Johnny Manziel to succeed. I was a really big Johnny Manziel fan, even to this day. Like, you can't tell me nothing about Johnny Manziel. For real, like, I'm just sorry, but when it comes to Johnny football, I just lose all common sense. Johnny Manziel is a real dog when he's playing for Texas A&M, bro. Like, some of y'all forget, Johnny Manziel put Texas A&M on the map. When you think of that stadium, whatever it's called, they need to change the name of that thing. They need to change Texas A&M Stadium to the house that Johnny built. Like, for real. Johnny Manziel really put the Aggies on the map. And if you think I'm tripping, man, like, you need to go back back and watch a few highlights and read what people used to write about Johnny Manziel. Johnny Manziel was that dude. He was that boy. Like, I know his NFL career didn't work out, but in college football, bro, this dude is like an icon. He's like a he's like a legend in the history of college football, man. Like, when you think of Texas A&M, like, you go up to any casual football fan, right? I'm not talking about you diehards out there. When you ask a casual football fan to tell you who's the first player that comes to mind when you think of Texas and them football, they're going to tell you Johnny Manziel. At least 95% of them. And I can bet money on this, bro. Like, if they had NIL back then when Johnny Manziel was playing, bro, this dude would have been cashing out. He might not have even came out as early. This dude would have been making would have been making a million dollars if we had NIL back then when he was playing for AM. Like he was really carrying Kevin Sumlin, him and Mike Evans. Cause once them boys left, Kevin Sumlin and Texas AM football, they went like for real. Them boys were down in the gutter for a couple years. Them boys ain't come back until they had Kelly Mond. For real. Like, Johnny Manziel, when they talk about Texas A&M football, like, he really put them boys on the map. He really put Texas A&M on the map, dog. Number three, I got Jameis, Mr. Crab Legs Winston, bro. Like, Jameis Winston, he may not have been as electric and dynamic as some of the other guys on this list, like Lamar Jackson and Johnny Manziel and RG3, but I will always remember Jameis Winston because all of those damn comebacks Florida State used to have, bro. Like, this dude would throw a million interceptions in the first half. Then the second half, I don't know what just happened, but this dude used to just turn his game up to a different level. And I'm a Miami Hurricane fan. Like, I remember in 2013 when them boys came in and they crashed us. I had to turn the game off. That's one of the few times I've ever had to turn off a Miami Hurricanes football game. Like, Jameis Winston was really snapping for Florida State. Like, there was a point when Jameis Winston, bro, he was a really big name, too. Now, when you had that whole incident with the crab legs and you had the little 
sexual assault stuff that was coming up. I was like, damn, Jameis, damn. What's going on? But when this dude was playing on the field, this dude used to show up and show out. Especially when they were down big. Like, you remember when people tried to accuse him of potentially being down or forcing the Florida State to be down and making them come back because he was, like, having somebody who was betting on the games or something like that? It's like a weird conspiracy theory that people have. But a lot of people who remember Jameis Winston at Florida State, like, you knew Jameis was that dude. That dude in the biggest moments, that dude used to show up. I literally cried when Jameis Winston... And FSU had played against Notre Dame, and they beat Notre Dame, bruh. Like, Notre Dame was up, and then Florida State ended up coming back, and then Notre Dame ended up throwing the touchdown. They ended up getting called back because of offensive pass interference. Like, I cried. That's how much I hated Florida State. I did not like Florida State. But this man, Jameis Winston, bruh, like, this dude used to come up big in every big game. Like, this dude did not lose. Like, I think one of the few losses he took was to Oregon. And the Oregon just, they bent them boys over and gave him a spanking. But the year that boy won the Heisman Trophy, bro, he was going off. You may say Jameis Winston may be a little bit too high on this list, man. But that boy Jameis Winston, like, he just had that dog in him. For real. That boy Jameis Winston, game on the line, you down the touchdown with two minutes left. You wanted to put the ball in his hands. This dude was one of the clutchest quarterbacks in college football during the 2010s. For real. There weren't too many QBs who had the ice in their veins like Jameis Winston did. Jameis Winston had them boys rolling. You remember when they played at Auburn in the national championship? What was that? That was what? Gus Malzahn's first season? When they had, who, Nick Marshall at QB? And they had that big, they had the, what, the kick six against Bama Dog? Like, college football was lit as hell the year Jameis Winston won the Heisman Trophy, man. Like, I miss the BCS era. I really do, even though the BCS was some BS. But during that era of college football, that I think that's when college football was at its peak. For real. And let me know if you agree with this, man. But that boy Jameis Winston was a real dog. A real dog, man. The year he won the Heisman Trophy, bro, he was snapping. And the year after that... He kind of took a step back because he had all those damn turnovers and interceptions, but it didn't matter because some way, somehow, he used to always find a way to will Florida State back into the game and to find a way to win. It used to always piss me off because I used to go to middle school with a bunch of Florida State fans, and every time FSU was down, I used to go on Facebook. I used to be like, yeah, like, y'all boys going to take an L today. And then at the halftime, that boy Jimmy Winston come out just slinging that rock. And I used to be like, damn, bro. Like, what is it with this dude, man? Why you just don't lose? Like, how you going to play bad? How you going to play, like, garbage in the first half? And then all of a sudden, you look like the next great thing since Tim Tebow in the second half. Like, I really could not stand watching James Winston play. As a Hurricane fan, I used to not like this dude for real because of how good he was. This dude used to always come through in the second half. Like, I could not believe it. And you would think, like, week after week after week after week, like, eventually they would have their time. But no. Like, every single week, every time they come, every time they down at halftime, them boys come right back out and start slinging that thing with Jameis Winston, dog, slinging that rock. And Jameis Winston is the best quarterback that Jimbo Fisher has ever had. Like, ever since Jameis Winston... Left FSU, Jimbo Fisher has not had a quarterback that's been even remotely close to as good as what Jameis Winston has been. 
Jameis Winston was a real dog when he was playing for the Seminoles, bruh. For real. Got them boys in the national championship. Them boys had hella comebacks like every single week. I remember that ACC championship game, man. I thought they was really going to lose to Georgia Tech. They did it. They did it like nearly every single week. And for those of you guys who remember college football at that time, you remember exactly what I was talking about. Like this dude used to have so many damn comebacks. You used to think every single week, like they're going to be able to pull it off. Like this finally the week they take it out. But he used to do it every single week. He used to frustrate the hell out of me, man. I was like, damn, why y'all boys just don't lose? Because now I got to go to school and hear all these FSU fans in my ear. At number two, I got Joe Burrow. I don't think too much needs to be said about what Joe Burrow did during his time at LSU. His first season at LSU was average. But after that, them boys just snapped. Like, it was just a perfect storm. This dude, he wasn't the most physically gifted QB. He wasn't the most physically imposing QB. He wasn't even the most talented QB. But Joe Burrow, Jay, Joe Cool, a.k.a. Mr. Joe Shiesty, like, this dude's demeanor just was different. This dude was just cut from a different cloth. Like, I remember during his first season when they were playing UCF in the bowl game, he threw an interception, he got smashed. Motherfucker guy came and crack blocked him. And then after that, that boy came back and started throwing dimes. That boy got activated like Joe Burrow taking that big hit against that UCF defender. That was the worst thing UCF could have done because after that, that boy Joe Burrow just locked in. He just got into a different bag. And then that year after, 2019, when, when that boy won the Heisman, and at the time he broke college football's record for most passing touchdowns in the season, eventually that was broken by Bailey Zappi. Like that LSU 2019 as one of the best teams in college football history. Now, some people even say it's the best team in college football history. I'm not going to go that far because, you know, a lot of the old heads, they're going to tell you about Nebraska in the 80s and the old Miami Hurricane teams, and we ain't going to get into all that. When Joe Burrow was playing, Merle, in 2019, that was one of the greatest, if not the greatest single-season performance that we've ever seen from a quarterback. And you may say Joe Burrow may not deserve to be this high, because you may be basing it on overall careers. And he didn't have the amount of high-level play as some of the other guys behind him did. But that one long season, I think, makes up for that, man. Like, this man threw, what, 60 touchdowns and only six interceptions, man? Like, the way they beat Alabama had Nick Saban pissed. Nick Saban was really heated with how LSU was cocky after they beat them. Like, after that season... Alabama before the game, right, Nick Saban was interviewed by one of the reporters, and they asked him about last season and all of LSU's antics after the game, and that boy Nick Saban said that we finna come in here and change the way they think, and they did, they mopped the floor with them boys, like that's how bad that LSU did Alabama, and the game was really entertaining, was really close, and not even like LSU blew them out, it's just the way they went about beating them, the way they went after about it in the game, like, they just had a different swagger to him, like, one thing about that boy Joe Burrow, like, that boy got a lot of swag, I don't care if nobody tells me, like, that boy Joe Burrow was cut different, I don't know what the hell is into this man's genes or into his bloodstream, but this man just has a different mentality, for real, this man was a cold-blooded killer at times on the field, he was so cerebral, it's like, no matter what you do at this dude, no matter how many times he got hit, no matter if he had a guy with 300 pounds crap blocking him off an interception like this dude used to lock in. 
like in 2019, that was one of the greatest seasons ever for a QB. Probably the greatest season ever for a quarterback. And he wasn't even super dynamic running the football. He could do that too. It's just like Joe Burrow, when he had to get it done, he got it done. And they got Justin Jefferson, Terrence Marshall, Jamar Chase. They had Randy Marlson. They had Clyde Erezy Lair. They had a fantastic offensive line that won the Joe Morrow Award. They were stacked on defense. Like that LSU team just was the perfect storm. And the main reason for that was because of Joe Burrow. People forget, like, LSU always been wide receiver you. Like, they always had great QB. They always had great wide receiver play. They just always had average to below average QB play. Like, them boys, Odell Beckham and Jarvis Landry, Juice, them boys had Zach Mansberger at QB. Like, them boys would have had Joe Burrow back then, back in 2013, 2014, or whenever, when OBJ and Jarvis Landry were playing. Them boys probably would have turned up and won a national championship, too. Especially that year when they lost to Alabama in the BCS National Championship game. When they had Pat Pete, Honey Badger. I mean, if they would have had Joe Burrow back then, them boys most definitely would have gave it to Alabama. For real. I love me some Joe Burrow, man. You can't tell me nothing about that dude. I love me some Joe Burrow. That boy in 2019, like, he, he was going off. He was setting off college football. And you guys already know who's number one, bro. Cam Newton. Like, when I first... Started watching college football in 2010, and I was watching Cam Newton play. I was a third grader at the time, and I didn't really know too much about football. I just turned it on and just started watching it, and I used to watch Auburn play, and I used to see Cam Newton. I was like, damn, bro, like, why do they have an offensive lineman at QB? But this dude was unstoppable. This dude is one of the greatest quarterbacks in college football history, probably the greatest. He carried Auburn to the national championship who the hell on that Auburn championship team made it to the NFL? I think some dudes might have got trials, but nobody who was actually good off that team. Like, that boy Cam Newton was a one-man wrecking crew. That man, the year he won the Heisman, accounted for 50 touchdowns, 20 on the ground, 30 through the air. This dude was a damn bully. He was like the equivalent to putting your fullback at QB, but he just knows how to throw the football really good. Like, this man Cam Newton was damn near unstoppable. Either he could beat you with his arm because he had one of the strongest arms in college football during that year, or he could beat you with his legs. I remember there was one play when they were, when they were playing LSU. This dude had a big touchdown run. Like, this dude was just a big, a big man at QB, just hauling, just hauling ass at QB and just dying defenses up. It's like you had no answer for that man. For real. Like, that boy Cam Newton was really him. And even when he got to the league, like, he was still him. He won an MVP. He took Carolina to the Super Bowl. Like, I think a lot of people still don't really give Cam Newton the credit he deserves. Even in college football, like, that was the single greatest performance that we've ever seen from a QB. And I know I sound a little bit of a hypocrite because I just said that about Joe Burrow. But now I think about Cam Newton and I think about that third grade me watching this man play. I used to be like, damn, who, who's this big dude at QB who's just unstoppable? He's stiff-arming guys. Like, this dude was kind of like Derrick Henry at QB. Like, Auburn had a cheat code with Cam doing that QB, dog. And what was even more fun about it was that these boys come out of nowhere. They came out of nowhere. This dude, Cam Newton, the year before, he went to Auburn, was playing out of Juco. Because he had left Florida. Remember, they, they said he had stole the laptop. And he tried to throw it out the window and something like that. So this man goes to 
what, Blaine College, a Juco down in Texas, he ends up snapping, and he goes to Auburn, and his only season starting as a college football QB takes them to the national championship game, man. If that's not the definition of an underdog, if that's not the definition of being counted out, I don't know what to tell you. Cam Newton damn near might be the greatest QB in college football history. Do y'all think Cam Newton's going to make it to the College Football Hall of Fame? Like, he has to be in the College Football Hall of Fame. Like, you cannot tell the story of college football without mentioning Cam Newton. You can't. It's just certain players that you just have to talk about when you're discussing 2010 college football. And it all starts with Cam Newton. What he did that 2010 season was legendary. This dude was a one-man wrecking crew. This dude was a wrecking ball. You had no answer for this dude. If you was the safety and you saw this man coming at you, you better move the f- out the way. Because he was going to either run through you or run over you. Either or. Like Cam Newton, third grade, me was just so superly impressed with Cam Newton. Just a guy of that size, with that athleticism. That was something that we haven't really seen before. He's kind of paved the way. For a lot of QBs that are now in the NFL, like Josh Allen, Anthony Richardson, every time there's a big QB that's what, 6'3 plus or 6'4, that's over 230, they always get compared to Cam Newton. Cam Newton really paved the way for a lot of QBs. And what a lot of people forget is that at the time when he went to the NFL, he was coming out of a spread offense. You remember how people used to be like, man, you got to come from a pro-style offense. Quarterbacks that come from the spread really don't work out. Like, he really changed the narrative with that. It's just like the stigma that people had about the air raid offense. If you come from the air raid offense, you'll never be successful at the NFL level. Like, Cam Newton really was a trendsetter for real. He was a trailblazer. He really paved the way for a lot of the QBs that are in the, that are in the game right now. But these are my top 10 college football quarterbacks of the 2010s or my top 10 college football quarterbacks since 2010 let me know what you guys think about this down in the comment section down below this is it for this episode of the jt sports podcast if you enjoyed this episode leave us with a five-star review we would greatly appreciate it you can listen to the jt sports podcast available on all podcasting platforms apple google spotify amazon wherever you get your podcast from you can find the jt sports podcast Share this episode with your friends, family members, and acquaintances if you enjoy. And I will see you guys tomorrow at 5 p.m. Eastern Time with another episode of JT Sports Live slash the JT Sports Podcast.